Now, to truly understand the extraordinary actions for which Clint is being honored, uh, you need to understand the almost unbelievable conditions under which he and B Troop served. This was a time in 2009 when many of our troops still served in small, rugged outposts, even as our commanders were shifting their focus to larger towns and cities. So Combat Outpost Keating was a collection of buildings of concrete and plywood with trenches and sandbags. Of all the outposts in Afghanistan, Keating was among the most remote. It sat at the bottom of a steep valley, surrounded by mountains terrain that a later investigation said gave ideal cover for insurgents to attack. Cop Keating, the investigation found, was tactically indefensible. That's what these soldiers were asked to do, defend the indefensible. The attack came in the morning, just as the sun rose. Some of our guys were standing guard, most, like Clint, were still sleeping. The explosions shook them out of their beds and sent them rushing for their weapons. And soon, the awful odds became clear. These 53 Americans were surrounded by more than 300 Taliban fighters. What happened next has been described as one of the most intense battles of the entire war in Afghanistan. The attackers had the advantage, the high ground, the mountains above. And they were unleashing everything they had rocket-propelled grenades, heavy machine guns, mortars, snipers taking aim. To those Americans down below, the fire was coming in from every single direction. They'd never seen anything like it. With gunfire impacting all around him, Clint raced to one of the barracks and grabbed a machine gun. He took aim at one of the enemy machine teams and took it out. A rocket-propelled grenade exploded sending sharpnel, uh, shrapnel into his hip, his arm, and his neck. But he kept fighting, disregarding his own wounds and tending to an injured comrade instead. Then, over the radio, came words no soldier ever wants to hear. Enemy in the wire. The Taliban had penetrated the camp. They were taking over buildings. The combat was close at times as close as 10 feet. When Clint took aim at three of them, they never took another step. But still, the enemy advanced. So the Americans pulled back to buildings that were easier to defend to make one last stand. One of them was later compared to the Alamo. One of them later compared it to the Alamo. Keating, it seemed, was gonna be overrun, and that's when Clint Romache decided to retake that camp. Clint gathered up his guys, and they began to fight their way back, storming one building, then another, pushing the enemy back, having to actually shoot up at the enemy in the mountains above. By now, most of the camp was on fire. Amid the flames and smoke, Clint stood in the doorway, calling in airstrikes that shook the earth all around him. Over the radio, they heard comrades who were pinned down in a Humvee. So Clint and his team unloaded everything they had into the enemy positions, and with that cover, three wounded Americans made their escape, including a grievously injured Stephen Mace. But more Americans, their bodies, were still out there. And Clint Romache lives the soldier's creed. I will never leave a fallen comrade. So he and his team started charging as enemy fire poured down. And they kept charging, 50 meters, 80 meters, ultimately a 100 meter run through a hail of bullets. And they reached their fallen friends and they brought them home. Now, throughout history, uh, the question has often been asked, why? Why do those in uniform take such extraordinary risks? And what compels them to such courage? You ask Clint and any of these soldiers who are here today, and they'll tell you. Uh, yes, they fight for their country, and they fight for our freedom. Yes, they fight to come home to their families. But most of all, they fight for each other, to keep each other safe, and to have each other's backs. 
When I called Clint to tell him that he would receive this medal, he said he was honored, but he also said it wasn't just me out there, it was a team effort. And so today, we also honor this American team, including those who made the ultimate sacrifice. Private First Class Kevin Thompson, who would have turned 26 years old today. Sergeant Michael Scusa. Sergeant Joshua Kirk. Sergeant Christopher Griffin. Staff Sergeant Justin Gallegos. Staff Sergeant Vernon Martin. Sergeant Joshua Hart. And Specialist Stephen Mace. Each of these patriots gave their lives looking out for each other. In a battle that raged all day, that brand of selflessness was displayed again and again and again. Soldiers exposing themselves to enemy fire to pull a comrade to safety, tending to each other's wounds, performing buddy transfusions, giving each other their own blood. And if you seek a measure of that day, you need to look no further than the medals and ribbons that grace their chests. For their sustained heroism, 37 Army Commendation Medals. For their wounds, 27 Purple Hearts. For their valor, 18 Bronze Stars. For their gallantry, 9 Silver Stars. These men were outnumbered, outgunned, and almost overrun. Looking back, one of them said, I'm surprised any of us made it out. But they are here today. And I would ask these soldiers, this band of brothers, to stand and accept the gratitude of our entire nation. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. Uh, I have uh, the Guardian Group on with me, uh, Jeff Teagues. He was on the podcast a couple of months back, uh, and they're talking about uh, what the Guardian Group does and some of his background in the United States Army. And we also have Jeff Keith on, who is the uh, CEO and founder of the Guardian Group. Gentlemen, how's it going? John, it's great to uh, be back on. We really appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. So, Jeff, it's, uh, Jeff Teagues, it's been a, a couple of months since you were on. So can we just kind of quickly just walk through your background uh, in the United States Army for people who might not have caught that first episode? Yeah, and let me even start, Johnny, with saying that uh, t today we just finished up the recognition of January being Human Trafficking Prevention and Awareness Month. So we've uh, this is a very timely issue for us. People focus on this specifically this one month of the year, with actually 11 January being the day that people focus on it. So the fact that we're actually meeting with you as this month has ended is important to us because we look at this problem 365 days a year, 12 months throughout the year, and so do these buyers and sellers and these, and these boys and girls are victimized throughout. So it's really important and really grateful that you are showing this interest still months later uh, and even beyond what kind of nationally we recognize it. No, no worries at all. And, you know, I um, I appreciate the work that you guys do. And I think it's absolutely incredible because of the, the scope of the crime and and really how how bad it is, especially within the United States. And people don't seem to uh, like when you think of human trafficking or, or child sex trafficking, the first thing you doesn't pop into your head is, oh, it's big in the United States. Um but it is, and I think what you guys are doing is incredible as far as shining the light on it and, and working to counter that, you know? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, later in the podcast, we're, I think we're going to blow some minds with just the, the scale and scope and the numbers. But like you said, we'll, we'll start with uh, reintroducing ourselves. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to introduce you to Jeff. He and I are uh, brothers from another mother which uh, is even more strange because he has a twin. So I don't know exactly how that works out. But, uh, you know, what, what he was arriving, he'll tell his story, but he began to move towards addressing this problem. Uh, he was called to do something about it. He was looking at ways to bring solutions to this problem. And independently on the other side of the country, uh, I was arriving at some of these same conclusions. 
So while I was in the military, I committed my, my life from uh, 1987 till retirement just a couple of years ago in counterterrorism and counterinsurgency and served in uh, a number of special operations units, starting with the Rangers and special forces, and then concluding at first, uh, first special forces operational attachment Delta. And that's where I concluded, concluded my career. As everyone knows, uh, things got quite interesting around 2001 and, and to this date as we've worked all across the globe countering terrorists and radical Islamic ideology and the threats to the United States. And as I was moving towards retirement, looking for a new enemy to combat, looking for a place to harness the talents and the skills that I was personally taught and learned and, and, and began to really employ successfully, and build a place for the men and women from special operations and the military that understand breaking apart networks, cr uh, crime syndicates, these, these same insidious ideas that run through terrorism, run through traffickers. So as I was looking to pre build an organization to offer this space for the men and women that I worked with, it was just by chance that I met Jeff Keith one day at a mutual friend of ours retirement and on the back of the deck, over a beer, we compared notes and found that we had very, very aligned ideas. Um, he had built built the framework and the bedrock for us to stand upon, and it was immediate kinship there. And we put our teams together, and I still had time before I retired. We started working before I was even retired, and as soon as I retired, I moved out here with my family and we've been working together ever since. Okay, and how long has it been since you retired, Jeff? So it was November of 2015. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm just just got over uh, three years. Can't believe how, how time flies. Um, and we, you know, the, the ideas we built and tested even before I retired, and we've really been refining them and kind of had an, iter an iterative process of cycling learning through successes and failures until we've arrived at a point really this year where we're really satisfied and, and excited to replicate and scale uh, what we've been able to do in different regions across the U.S. Okay, so Jeff Teagues, you know, we, we had a conversation on our, our previous podcast and uh, we did a little more diving into your your kind of journey to where you arrived at now as far as um, when you first became aware of this this crime of of sex trafficking and for you it was a, a it was global as you were serving you you started to see these things in different parts of the world um and then you know as you just said when you retired then you you decided you wanted to bring the same energy and the same skills and and uh things that you'd learned over your career to this fight so Jeff Keith can we talk about um a little bit of your background, and then what kind of drew you to this fight? Sure. Yeah, so in, in my early 20s, I was trained as a police officer. Um, I made a career change soon after being trained um, and went to the Air Force Special Operations um, in hopes of being a part of what Jeff was doing um, instead in his his years in service, um, I came to an abrupt end when I got injured. So I found myself having to, to think through life and, and what I want to do um, outside of service. And so I continued service, but it was in, as, in a role as a pastor. So I became a pastor in uh, the year 2000. And I was kind of, a um, I don't know, one of the black sheep of being a pastor because I really wanted to be out there with people um, and seeing and being a part of some, some hard areas, which brought me to countries and people in other countries that were dealing with stuff that um, we, we don't see here in the States. Um, and one of the trips that I had taken was to India, where we saw um, girls as young as seven, eight, nine that were being trafficked. And that trip um, pretty much put me on a different trajectory in my life and my wife's life. Um, came back here to the States, was working stuff, you know, as a pastor, and then started looking at the problem here. Like, this is, you know, it was pretty shocking that this, this happens here. And that was back in, uh, you know, late 2008, 2009, looking at the problem here. And then 
realized, you know, there's, there, it was pretty shocking to see that the people that we tasked to go after this problem were not trained and people were not working together. And so, you know, the, the hope and idea of, of Guardian Group stood up in 2010. And that was when it came to life. Like, I, I'm going to give my full time to this, this problem here in the United States. And there were some solutions. And soon after, I, I met Jeff at a buddy's retirement. And we started working out these solutions um, and started testing them. So, you know, on, back in, in Bend, Oregon, where we are, we started looking at the problems, started bringing people together, and started reaching out to a lot of other groups, not only providing this training for free to law enforcement and other groups, but looking at how we can actually take the, the skill set that Jeff and others bring from looking at terrorism and how does that overlap with looking at trafficking here in the pimps that we, we try to look at here. So, and that was a perfect fit. So once we started getting into law enforcement agencies, task forces and other groups, um, providing that free training, it also gave us a, a level of, uh, I don't know, professionalism and, and respect among these groups that now we can shift, we shifted um, not only doing just training, but actually giving some really good intel to these groups that help them to prosecute and find victims. And so in a nutshell, that's kind of, you know, the last 15 years has been um, focusing in, honing in how to go after the problem here in the States, um, which is different than how you go after the problem in India or China or, you know, these other places that have trafficking as well. So what, what would you say is the difference as far as like, so from the last convo I had with Jeff, you know, we were talking about, uh, I, I think we spoke about um, maybe it was Syria or a place like Iraq or something where the the government isn't so stable and the country isn't so stable. So uh, things are kind of just running wild and, and, you know, so to speak. So I could kind of see the difference like a place like that versus the United States. But what would the difference be in a place like India or China, perhaps? Uh, well, India, it's the caste system is, is a huge problem there. So you, you're born into this. You're born in as a, a trafficking victim. So that's, that's your job. And so, you know, and then if you try to help assist them, you know, a lot of times the corrupt governments um, are part of that. So if you rescue a girl and bring them to law enforcement, law enforcement most likely will be involved in that as well. So here, though, we have, we have, you know, we actually have a great force behind us. That's law enforcement that we've tasked about this problem. It's just assisting them on how to do it better. I see, and, and that's, that's where you guys are focusing on. Yeah, and what I would add to that too, John, is, is while we have a stable government and we have confidence in our government, our capability, including law enforcement, they're just being outpaced. And one of the reasons it's a bigger problem in America than most people think is because of our disposable wealth. And that's what really grossed me out. You know, and I, I don't know if we talked about this last time, but, you know, some of these, some of these people that we're fighting overseas, they, they truly believe in their cause. They're, they're believers in what it is they're doing. These pits and traffickers are, are knowingly exploiting, manipulating, controlling, just abusing these boys and girls simply for profit. So the mere fact that we have so much disposable wealth in America is, a, is just a breeding ground for this thing to, to, to scale. And over the last decade, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and it just continues to outpace law enforcement, the technology, and the scale and scope of this. You know, years ago, you used to have to recruit and groom a victim in person. Well, now it's being done to scale online. And you, we have to bring in these third parties like a guardian group who understands how to harness the technology on where this is being initiated all the way to the point of sale when it's advertised online and, and these deals are being made. So to the point where, you know, uh, let's say a pimp or somebody is, is trying to recruit a young girl uh, online, are they being uh, kind of honest with them about what, what it is they want from the beginning or do they kind of lure them in and then kind of force it on them in person. Yeah, it's a, it's a complete, it's a complete um, 
bait and switch type of thing. So the, you know, one of the statistics that's out there is the average age of entry into this crime is about 13 years old. And that, and that shocks people and it ought to, but, but there's a nuance to that number. And it's not that the average age of these girls being sold online is 13. That that's not, that's not a a true fact, but they are getting approached and getting wrapped into this at that age, because that's an age where girls are looking for their personal identity. They're looking to build their self-esteem. They're looking for that guy who's going to sweep them off their feet and, and give them the, the American dream that they're looking for. And most of these pimps, they enter the scene in that way. And I use pimps and traffickers uh, interchangeably. So they will enter into these girls and these boys' lives, and they will pretend that they're something they're not until they have that girl trapped. And that trapping could be through physical violence and abuse and threats, or it could be through, uh, you know, manipulation and just making a, a, a girl um, feel shame to the level that she's afraid to come forward. It, it is absolutely an insidious process, but they've got it down to an absolute science. And is this something that occurs more frequently, like in a major city, like in New York, for example? So, you know, the, the recruiting is everywhere. So um, I'm about to hit, hit you with some numbers, but let me, let me preface this, too, with, um, you know, these small towns, these guys will recruit girls from the small towns because they're, quote, unquote, naive. Or, you know, the, this idea that the small town girl is looking to make it big in the big city. So right. it's, a, it's a cycle that they use. They'll bring their, their girls from the urban areas and sell them to the small towns, and they'll recruit girls from the small towns and bring them and sell them in the big cities. So no, nobody is immune. And unfortunately, where there are men, there will be sex for sale. You know, and where there is sex for sale, these pimps and traffickers will exploit minors because that younger girl is easier to exploit and get their hooks into. And oh, by the way, the younger she is, the longer time they have to sell her and advertise her as a, as a young, beautiful girl. So let me hit you with some numbers, Johnny. And, and I hope these are shocking to people. And these are the numbers that we anchor our stuff off of. Because most of the time, when you hear numbers, it's, it's reports by victims or reports by people that are, that are in trouble. Most of this goes unreported. So we look at this, as we were talking about from the U.S., from the commercial side. In 2017, there were 53 million escort ads on just a handful of sites that we were able that we were able to count. 53 million ads for girls for sale. 31 of those, 31 million of those were advertised in the 18 to 25 range. And, and the reason we isolate that out is because that's where you're going to hide a minor. Like Jeff was talking about in India, you don't walk through our cities and see a nine-year-old for sale. Okay, there are nine-year-olds for sale, but it's, it's, it, it is so against our culture that it's much hidden and much harder to find. But it isn't, unfortunately, too much against our culture to sell a girl online. And as long as you say she's 18, everyone seems to be satisfied. And bringing this home for you, you're in New York City. That same year, 33.7 million ads were placed in New York City, and 2.6 million of those were in that 18 to 25 age range. So those are... Those should be staggering numbers. And, and what, we, what we estimate, John, from those ads, close to 90,000 of those ads included minors. That's in New York City. So this, this is just too profitable. The pimps get away with it. Less than 1% of them are ever prosecuted. And if, you're, if you can disassociate yourself from the fact that these are human beings being sold, it is a logical business decision for too many men in America. Wow, that is crazy. And so I remember one thing we, we did also touch on as well is that a lot of this and, and some of the training that you guys are doing is focused on the the hotel industry. Correct. Yeah. We yeah, we targeted hotels about three years ago because that was where you know the Johns meet up where the victims meet up traffickers all meet up there and we put together a training that that really specifies how to go after the problem in their industry and how do they recognize it report it um, we're here to be able to take reports from hotels 
but we, you know, we've seen that, you know, with, with hotels, it's still a hard sell for them to, you know, understand that it exists in their industry and then trying to train their people is even harder because once you realize that it's happening, um, a lot of times it's easier to turn a blind eye to that. So we, um, yeah, we, and it's not just, you know, it's other businesses as well. You know, we, we work with, we train task forces, first responders. We're getting in with the education system, uh, the medical field. Um, obviously, law enforcement is a big piece of that training. And then from there, too, are other, other hotels, I mean, other corporations and businesses. We partnered up with Facebook and Salesforce. We had discussions with Airbnb. Um, so there, it's not just, you know, one area. Everybody has to get behind this as well and, and be trained on how to recognize and respond to this. Yeah, I, I believe I saw it was a post from, I think it was on the Guardian Group Instagram, um, where there was a state that made it, I think if, if, if I'm wrong, uh, you can correct me, but there was some, one state in the U.S. that made it uh, law that hotels had to train on this or, or something like that. Yeah, there's the third state just got passed, and that's California. Okay, and that's gonna, that's one because a lot of other states follow that too. You know, if one state, like California, passes that, we're working with other states on on uh, mandatory training for hotels and also law enforcement. So there's there's you know it's just the the tip right now is happening, but it's definitely going to be more that are going to start passing these bills. And John, it's it's on the on the table again here in March for Florida, and you guys are talking about it in New York. It's you know your your legislators are talking about it, looking to figure out how they can introduce it. And that's one of those things we would say to your listeners: is make their voice be heard. You know, make make the hotel industry and other other corporations learn and understand this crime and be held accountable for uh, the due diligence and duty of care that we all expect from them. Yeah, I think it's important because, you know, here in in, uh, in New York, uh, for all commercial buildings, there are certain uh, state laws and, and things that have to be followed as far as um, fire safety. Uh, they just recently introduced um, active shooter scenario training. So if there's an active shooter, you know, there has to be a few people on site at the building who are trained and how to respond and, and that sort of thing. And in my mind, it, it shouldn't be difficult to, you know, for the state to mandate that in, in uh, commercial buildings you have to be trained for this, or specifically for hotels, uh, rather, uh, to be trained to, to watch out for these things or to have a hotline that you can call or, or things like that. You're spot on. You made, the, you made a terrific correlation. And, you know, while we, we do throw these numbers and sometimes we can sound discouraged that, this isn't a discouraging problem because as people understand this and become aware of it, they have a place to take a stand and you're spot on. Obviously the, uh, if an active shooter event occurs, it is, it's devastating. You know, it's catastrophic, but the likelihood that it, that an active shooter is event is going to occur is very, very, very low. Whereas it's really high that a trafficking event is going to occur and it's more than just the hotels. It's in the restaurants. It's, it's where people live. It's going to, it's going to be intersecting all across your daily life. So you, you are correct. And it's only a matter of time that we will elevate this crime and understand its impact on our citizens to take the appropriate action. Active shooter, like I said, it's such a catastrophic event and makes such headline news. Um, this thing will ultimately seep into America's conscience and we'll be saying enough is enough. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, aside from the law enforcement side, I think that that kind of has to, hop, to happen to, uh, you know, to, to deny the uh, the areas for the pimps to, to operate in. And this is something we touched on the last podcast where it was kind of that, that counterinsurgency mindset, um, you know, that special operations teams bring to the table when they're when they're going overseas and and trying to counter terrorism it's it's really kind of the same thing in in many ways yeah exactly there's only so much law enforcement can do it, it it's going to take the community community leaders you know community council members 
you know, business, business persons, all, you know, every walk of life to, to just address this. Um, and that, what that will also do is it'll free up law enforcement to, to attack this further. It'll, it'll bring funding um, to their efforts because they're hugely resource constrained. You know, and then the, the war on drugs, the war on this, the war on that, as all of these things kind of pass or decline over time, this, this war on defending and protecting our women and children has, has got to become more in the forefront. So with the, um, you know, the, the government recently being shut down and it's, it's primarily focused on the fight between uh, funding for building a wall at the southern border, um, one of the things that has been said as as to why it uh, it's good to have this wall, let's say, is it it will help fight child sex trafficking. Is that something that uh, you guys agree with or disagree with? I think I think it's going to deter. It could help deter some of the trafficking that's coming in from outside the states. Um, what we see, though, is that 80, 85 percent of our victims are from the United States. OK. So and, and let me unwrap that a little bit, too, John, because we're, we're, we're on this theme that people need to understand. This is a business. OK. And the, the business is supplying what the buyer wants. And the buyer wants a girl he can communicate with predominantly. He's going to buy a girl looking for an experience. So if you're bringing in a foreign girl across the border that that you can't communicate with, she's not that valuable, you know. The, and, and and when you're talking about the risks that these pimps and traffickers are going to assume, why would you run the risk of bringing a girl from a foreign nation across a, a, a boundary? She doesn't have the appropriate identifications, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, when when there's American girls that you could choose from, so the risk doesn't outweigh the gains by bringing in girls versus using them uh, that you have already at your disposal. And again, from, from the product. So we, we don't want to dismiss the fact that controlling our borders will definitely inhibit some of the trafficking that's going back and forth. Right. Like Jeff said, at, at the most, we're talking 10, 15% of the problem in the United States. The rest of it are, is domestic and they're our own hometown girls. Right. So there was, um, I don't know if you remember this, Jeff, I, I, I shot you a text. I, it might have been a couple of months ago, but it was definitely after we we had podcasted, and I was having a debate with a couple of friends of mine. And this was um, I don't know. I don't remember if this was around the time that Backpage was shut down, or or it was a few months after. I don't really remember. But um, I had asked you if um, if there was child sex trafficking taking place on Backpage, as it's a, a popular place where, you know, there's uh, prostitution and, and um, you know, buying of, of sexual services, I guess you can say. Um, so uh, President Trump, he signed the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act. And I believe it's basically uh, this bill was to shut down uh, websites where child sex trafficking was going on. Um, and do you feel like this is something that has helped overall or? It, it, it really has. It's been tremendous. And let me let me highlight a couple of different things on that. And, and it, it, this is such a hard thing to talk about because it's, it's so complex. So when we talk about child sex trafficking, too, and specifically on Backpage, we're not talking about pedophilia. We're not talking about guys ordering up nine-year-olds, eight-year-olds, seven-year-olds. It's, it's the child aspect because that girl can be controlled and exploited. You know what I mean? That's that, the, the average buyer, when you think of this as a business, he just wants a pretty young girl. He wants to know or think that she's 18 years old and he's satisfied. The, the sickos that want to have sex with children, that's just not a huge market. So Backpage was... was tail, um, was working towards that market, and they actually built, from what I understand, and I think all of this stuff is still in the courts, but from what I understand, they actually built algorithms so that the advertising that said a girl was young or a lolita or any of these other code words would automatically shift that. So, so Backpage, my understanding, the owners of it and the people that, the proprietors of it, they were knowingly advertising minors online. Wow. So they were complicit in this. And that was the thing that, that contributed to their fall. The, the SESTA and FOSTA acts were also pivotal because what that said was, look, 
just because you're a third-party purveyor online doesn't mean you are completely unaccountable for what's being sold. And, and John, we, we understand that. It's like, it's like Craigslist or something, or, or even on these pages where you and I are selling an, an old bicycle or old office furniture. You know, we don't, we don't want to be that, that, that website manager. We don't want them accountable for every single thing that's sold online. But there's also a space there where we have to hold them accountable when it's humans. Right. When they're selling humans, okay, and very specifically children, we have to hold them accountable. And that disruption, I think overall, has been dramatic. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands, millions of girls were salvaged from being raped with Backpage being shut down. You will hear some of these counter arguments that it has made life more dangerous for these girls because they're pushed on the streets. They don't have the protections to arrange those meetings and that, that point of sale online. And I wouldn't undervalue that risk either. That is a true risk. But the scale of it that has been shut down with closing a back page, I, I think greatly outweighs these other threats. But all we've done, all we've seen now, is once Backpage is shut down, other escort sites have sprung up and they're hosted overseas to avoid our federal laws, and everything is back in play. Not quite as organized as it was um, and, you know, back in 2017, early 2018, but because this is such a high market, there's so much money to be made, you can continue to resell these girls and risk single-digit percentage chance that you're going to be prosecuted, the business is alive and well. So just because the, the sites are hosted overseas, then that, you know, they're, they're above federal law, so to speak. Yep, that's exactly right. So we can't shut them down with our federal laws. Um, and, you know, everything was basically replicated at Backpage. The, the, where it's, it's right now is there's a couple of different escort sites that are all vying for kind of market share. And I think that will settle out and we'll see an, another increase in the online sales of, of women and children over the next year or two, um, unless we continue to really raise our voices as a community to, to just put an end to it. So this is something I, I was kind of wondering. Um, over the summer, I, I spent a couple of days in Amsterdam and, you know, they have their, their Amsterdam is known for several things, but one thing they have is their red light district. And it's, it's basically their legal prostitution. Now in a place like Amsterdam, I'm not sure how, you know, how, um, how read up on Amsterdam you guys are, but in a place like that, where there is legal prostitution, does that then kind of, um, kind of stop the flow of child trafficking or does it make it easier to see where it's happening or, or not so much? Again, buddy, really a, a complex question, but I'll try to answer it in a number of ways. It's really difficult to um, equate things that happen in a place like Amsterdam with the size and the heterogeneity of the United States. Uh, Amsterdam is largely a homogenous culture and, and group of people. Uh, it is also very, very small in comparison. So, right. it, you know, like, like what would you, cons you know, what do you equate Amsterdam to a, a suburb of Detroit? You know, I mean, what do you, what do you, how do you even equate that? Um, so while there are some good news stories that they try to advertise while protecting these girls, there is plenty of organized crime, pimps and traffickers running these girls in Amsterdam. Right. The rates of suicide of these girls is through the roof. The, the rates of disease and drug addiction is, is through the roof. So for, for every one little happy picture they want to paint of an Amsterdam, then you have, you have a counterpoint. Um, and the last thing I would say, too, because it isn't just Amsterdam, it's about prostitution in the United States. Because there's so much money to be made, if you're a woman who wants to sell her body as a prostitute and make money as a sex worker, there are plenty of people that want that, that say that's okay. And that's not, that's not Guardian Group's fight. We're not here to, you know, to uh, decriminalize prostitution or overly criminalize prostitution. The reality of it is this, the situation we have in America today 
is that girl will not be an independent for long because a, a pimp will come in, a trafficker will come in, and he will say, you work for me now. Why would a pimp or trafficker allow a girl to be working in his space and he doesn't make anything off of it? It just doesn't happen for long. So while this idea of the independence, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty woman prostitute like Julia Roberts putting yourself through college, man, that is few and far between. And it's only a matter of time that one of these pimps and traffickers is going to come in and begin that abuse. That's the reality of it. Right. Yeah, we, we were testifying at the House of Representatives a couple of years ago about, um, and we were in support of these bills that were you know, coming out about taking away licenses from known traffickers, driver's license, hunting license, such and that. And there was a group there, I won't name it, but it's an international group that their stance was that they, um, that they support legalization of prostitution to include minors. Wow. That was a shock for us and everybody in there as well, because what it does is now you set up this framework where you've allowed it to be uh, decriminalized, and then it allows now these these child victims not to have any protection now, like Jeff was saying. And that's then that's the scary part. So if you've now you've said it's it's illegal to have a minor in prostitution, you can't as a minor be a prostitute. That's that's illegal here. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean uh, you know, to the the this like you guys said, just the scale of this thing is really um remarkable and um it just you know it makes me wonder like as far as kind of tackling the problem is is there more that can be done um through legislation do you think or like are there are there things that guardian group you know would would like to happen in order to make this uh something that you could that can be scaled down yeah i'll, I'll let jeff uh to top on this too quick, John. But one, one thing that I wanted to emphasize is, even with this question, look, man, we're not we're not trying to be divisive. We're not, we we don't want to be at loggerheads with the camp that wants to legalize prostitution or do this or do that or or you know legalize all sorts of. We we want to find that common ground with folks, and and, it, and all we ask for a community is to, to partner and find that common ground that says children don't belong in this industry. If, if you can agree with us that children should not be sold for sex, that's enough common ground for us to begin moving forward. And too often we're finding ways to divide ourselves. We're really looking for ways to, to, to unite behind this thing. And while, you know, we are, we are under no illusion that we're going to wipe out you know, trafficking in America, to, to see those numbers raised from 1 to 2 to 3 to 10 to 20 percent of traffickers are prosecuted, that will have a tremendous effect. And really, you know, before I hand it over to Jeff, what we're asking for is people to just recognize the insidiousness of this crime, recognize the, that, these, that these women, these prostitutes, these whores, these sluts, whatever it is they're calling them, are victims. These girls are victims. They do not choose this. They are manipulated and exploited, and the level of violence and manipulation is staggering. These women are victims, and they need to know that people will see them as humans, that when they get out of this crime, they can have a life. Because they are completely brainwashed and controlled to think they're worthless, they have no future. So just as a community, we have to be open to restoring these these women, girls, boys, men, and helping them understand that when they are given a chance to choose and leave and get away from this control, that there's actually a community out there ready to welcome them. And I'll hand more comment to Jeff. No, and I think to answer your question, no, I think one of the big things that needs to happen is a is a shift in in our focus on attacking the problem. So, like federally, most money has gone gone towards, um, and it's great. You know, it's victim centered approach where 
A lot of money goes towards the resources to help victims. But there has to be a shift to actually start resourcing and putting money behind the prevention of it. We, we do our, we're, we're largely in the prevention business where we prevent through our training, but we also prevent through our technology and the people that are experts in the field here. And so money needs to start shifting over. And we're starting to see that happen a little bit. People are, if people are tired of admiring the problem of trafficking. We've had people go out there around the country and talk about the problem, throw these stats out. And there's, a, there's almost like a dissatisfaction right now among, the, um, among community members or among politicians, everybody, law enforcement, that, okay, we, we understand there's a problem, but what can we do about it? And who's going to go upstream and actually stop this from happening? So groups like ours, Guardian Group is one of very few that do this in alignment with law enforcement to stop the problem and not just start talking about the problem and, you know, creating statistics that most of them are junk anyways, but to be really specific about how do you go after that. And that's why it's so important that we bring on our team folks that have spent their lives doing this overseas from this, this special group of people to be able to stop it. And that's, and that's what it excites me to start seeing that there are some shifts being taken place, but it, it, I think it needs to happen quicker if we realize that this problem happens. It, it kind of sickens me that, you know, people are understanding that this problem happens, but then it's, there's not a lot of solutions out there. And there's not a lot of, you know, no one, not a lot of people are out there um, supporting the, the, the actual fight against trafficking. Right. And, and, you know, part of why I would, you know, like to have you guys on and, and, um, you know, work with you guys in any way I can is to kind of contribute to, to um, you know what you guys are doing and in, in, in the preventative stuff and and bringing awareness to it. Um, so one of the things that you you guys do and you just touched on that, Jeff, is uh, you are helping uh, in, in two ways because you're you're helping with this fight against this uh, this crime and then you're also helping uh, veterans who have a special uh, skill set and a special kind of um, experience into having a fight that they can put that energy back into. Can we talk about some of that? Yeah. You know, we, there's a technology aspect and, and it's what we've learned um, monitoring communications on terrorists, their social media, how they speak. So there are things that we look for um, that we have been uniquely trained to try to identify what what is the communication, how are they coordinating and synchronizing their operations, you know, from the terrorist point of view, their business, their industry, from the, the pimp trafficker point of view. I think we understand the criminal mind quite a bit because, you know, I, when I sit across from a trafficker and I talk to that individual, he reminds me very much of an Al-Qaeda ISIS individual. Their narcissism, the way that they explain away why it is they do what they do and how they have that right. I literally have flashbacks uh, to talking to these monsters overseas. We have to stop excusing this behavior, you know, from, from little things on how we treat women. I mean, there's a, there's a heavy movement in America today on, on how men treat women and, and how we over, you know, over sexualized everything. That is a dialogue, but on the split, the flip side of that, we are giving these criminals a way out over and over and over again. So I think that people coming out of the military that have committed to the, you know, counterterrorism and counterinsurgency of their lives, they understand the criminal mind. They understand, they understand how to hunt, how to manhunt, how to, how to explain the complex analysis of, of technical information and, and intelligence gained from talking to other, other humans and building a compelling story that law enforcement is able to act upon. A lot of what we do is just put the pieces together enough so that law enforcement can prioritize this. Probable cause, reasonable, reasonable suspicion, those are things they need before they can begin to take action. And those are all things that we were the initial building blocks for us whenever we targeted individuals overseas or we began campaigns against a certain threat actors. And then lastly, John, is we've learned over time how to turn off um, the deleterious effects of just looking at these terrible things. We know PTSD is a real thing. 
um, from veterans. We also know PTSD is a real thing from, from law enforcement, and specifically these men and women that deal with child pornography and sex trafficking. So we try to bring in professionals that have already learned how to deal with this. They've learned how to compartmentalize, how to cope with the PTSD of, of seeing this trauma and living through this trauma. You know, keeping our people healthy is important to us, but the folks that we have that we're bringing into this fight have already honed these skills. Because um, looking at this crime is as horrific, if not more, than some of the abuses that we've seen uh, internationally in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, etc. Right. And um, so now for people, like let's say, you know, people listening or um, anyone who may come across the Guardian Group online or, or uh, you know, anywhere else. Um, what is something that they can they can do in order to uh, contribute and help you guys uh, in this fight? So, John, you know, I think I'm, I think I was already at this point finally last time we talked, and we we just were really looking at funding. You know, we are building. We have we are very satisfied with where we're at operationally and our systems. So we need to to scale that. We have a deck of people on board coming out of the special operations community and other elements of the military that we're just trying to gain the funding to hire. So we, we have what we call an invite hiring process where, where we have a, a, a bench right now of folks that we're trying to pull in and we're, we're one-offs and two-offs of people that we already know and we're working through. So the biggie for us right now is that funding. Secondly, like we've talked about, is, is raising this awareness through your community leaders and demanding that we have protocols and procedures in place for addressing this in hospitals, in, in the hotel industry, in other corporations. If you're a corporate leader, these requests for proposals, you can ask hotels, conferences, what, what are your policies to address trafficking? We can begin to demand change just by the way we, we spend our money. Um, and then Lastly, too, we want to leave, um, you know, before we're all said and done, just some simple recommendations for, for parents who suspect this might be happening out there uh, and some simple what to do if you think you're bumping up against this crime. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so even on our website, we have some of these, these resources available, online safety tips, red flags for parents, things like that. So... Becoming educated on that is a huge thing because once we, once people find out about the problem and, and actually some real solutions, um, we find that they are more apt to be a part of the solutions in their community and start bringing people together and start being a voice. But it usually takes a little bit of understanding what the problem is and how real it is. Yeah. So if if you wanted to leave some tips and and things like that, please go ahead. Right now? Yeah. So, like, just even with online safety tips, you know, making sure that you're, you're aware of what your child is doing on, on the Internet, you know, on their cell phone, um, learning, learning to just teach the kids. And that's what there's some specifics about this on our, on our website, about, about social media and the presence of, of these people that are trying to lure them. So, and, and honestly, just being involved in their lives, checking on their apps that they have, you know, being okay with the fact that you can check your, your child's phone and having that open dialogue with them is huge. And then there's just, you know, other things that red flags for parents, like, you know, the unexpected cash that they have, unexplained cash or clothing, things that, you know, how they come in with this new amount of clothing and money, um, fake IDs, um, starting to use certain terminology even, you know, like if they're using the word game, you know, they're in the game or daddy or have a, you know, they have a manager, um, things like that, you know, and, and part of it's being involved in a child's life. We just an hour before our call with you, um, we got notified by the juvenile justice and asking for some help that a girl was being uh, solicited through a fake business looking for, you know, wanting her to come, you know, hire her. And whether or not that was trafficking, um, I'm glad this guy was this guy was on and he let us know and we find out it was a fake business. 
And it just helps to, if you see something that's something that's not right, reach out to people in your community, law enforcement groups like ours, um, and say something to them because like, it could deter this girl from being picked up if it were um, a, a trafficking incident. And, and for the listeners, uh, what is the website? And, and if you can also uh, drop your social media handles as well. Our website is theguardiangroup.org. Soon to be guardiangroup.org. But right now it is theguardiangroup.org. And I'm not sure of on, – on that, you'll have all the access to all our social media. Okay, right. John, we're pulling in Andrew here for the social media handles. You, you stumped these uh, two old dinosaurs with uh, what that what that means. So Andrew's going to weigh in on that. Hey, Johnny. For Instagram, it's the Guardian Group, and then Facebook is Guardian Group. Okay, and and you guys are normally posting on there like tips and and things that people can do as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And um, you know, th- this is something that's so important. You know, I said this the last time I had Jeff Teagues on here and, um, you know, to, to, to be able to assist uh, the Guardian Group, uh, you know, if you know someone who is looking to uh, invest their money somewhere or a charity or something like that, um, I think it's worth having a conversation and say, hey, uh, take a look at the Guardian Group because what they're doing is extremely important. Um, and, you know, regardless of your political views, I think we can all agree that this is something that's worth fighting for and, um, and uh, downsizing the, the scale and scope of, of this kind of crime of uh, child sex trafficking. Yeah, Johnny, you know, there's a, there's a statistic out there, and it's mostly about child abuse, but there's a statistic that's pretty record uh, recognized that for every dollar of prevention, you're actually uh, saving $32 of taxpayer dollars. You know, because just the aftercare and all the things that are that are tied into that. So, it, in addition to ideologically uh, and 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 just helping children, it, it's fiscally responsible. And you know, we we work all across the U.S. Um, you know, by design, we have our headquarters built, and we're, we're beginning to reach out. We're going to be out your way in New York. I hope to see you in person. Yeah, where we're sure. starting to build out some support there, and and really trying to focus in and and bring some answers to New York City. And then lastly, too, now I can talk with you a little bit more um, offline, but we would invite your listeners. We have a we have a drawbridge survey. I can send you that link, and it's and it's a little it's a little exercise that people go through to understand the complexity of this crime and and where each person, in no matter what your role in life is in the U.S., you have an opportunity throughout the cycle of of exploitation and that these that these kids go through. To potentially make an effect. So I'll circle back with you and, and invite your listeners to participate in that. It's just another way to kind of hammer home some of these things that we've discussed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, when we uh, when I post this episode, I, I, I can put the links to that uh, up on the website and the social media. Um, and, you know, again, I, I want to thank you guys for doing this and, and all the work that you do. Uh, like I said, it's extremely important, and um, you know I look forward to seeing you guys in a couple of weeks. Thanks, John. We really appreciate it. Thank you, and thank you for being a voice. Tell me why it's so important to you that the enemy not get their hands on a dead American soldier. Why? Why does that thought bother you so much? Because they're ours. I mean, to give closure to the family. You know, to have their son one more time. We're not going to leave someone behind. Never going to do it. You're so tough on yourself. You were braver that day than most of us can imagine being. And I can still hear it in your voice when you talked about talking to Sergeant Breeding or talking to Sergeant Gallegos. 
Because if you failed that day, you didn't fail that day. Yeah, but it's, you know, I told him I'd be there, you know. Like I said, my granddad used to teach me that, you know, when you tell someone you're going to do something, you do it. You know, you, your actions is what makes you. And, and I know I'm hard on myself, but, you know, it still hurts to, to tell Sergeant Breeding, you know, I was going to make it to him, but I, I just couldn't.